Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Coming up later in today's feature report, Enrique Sands with the Indiana Environmental Reporter will, in part two, continue his discussion on small modular nukes, which talks about the possible use of small nuclear reactors by Indiana power companies and the problems surrounding these reactors. And now for your environmental reports. This story was published originally by IndyStar. For utility customers across Indiana, 2022 probably felt like one thing right after another when it comes to their bills. And they would be right, according to consumer advocates. In recent months, utilities have repeatedly raised rates to cover the skyrocketing cost of the coal and gas needed to run their plants, as well as the energy they had to buy from the grid when some of those plants unexpectedly shut down. Hoosiers are paying dearly for the failure of Indiana utilities to move more quickly on transitioning to clean energy, said Ben Inskeep, the program director at the Citizens Action Coalition, a consumer advocacy group. In 2021, Indiana ranked third in the nation for total coal consumption, fueling 58% of Indiana's electricity generation according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Gas wasn't far behind, powering about 30% of the state's energy. Renewable resources, however, supply just about 10% of Indiana's energy. Indiana ranks among the states with the least renewable energy. Many customers, depending on their utility and the amount of the electricity they use, are paying as much as $15 per month more this year compared to last year. And consumer costs have been increasing significantly in the last two decades. Residential customers at four out of Indiana's five big utilities are now paying an average electric bill that is higher than 150 per month, according to data from annual residential bill surveys available from the State Utility Regulatory Commission. That's nearly double what most bills were in the year 2000. The legislature of Indiana identified two goals for energy from the 2022 session, small nuclear reactors and carbon dioxide capture. There is news on nuclear provided by the Indiana Environmental Reporter. In a case that could cast a cloud on the Hoosier State's nuclear power ambitions, higher steel prices and interest rates could drive up the price of electricity at the nation's first small modular nuclear reactor plant to nearly twice previous estimates. Project developers for the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems Carbon-Free Power Project, a planned 462-megawatt electric plant 
powered by six small modular reactors, told at least one UAMPS member that prices could run up to $100 per megawatt hour, nearly double the projected $58 per megawatt hour. By comparison, the average price for electricity from all sources combined in the grid that serves Indiana and 14 other states, the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator reached $116 per megawatt hour at its peak. Renewable energy on its own also experienced large price increases due to supply chain difficulties, pushing utility-scale solar energy and onshore wind energy rates to $45 and $46 per megawatt hour, respectively. Thus, wind and solar cost less than half the cost of nuclear. In spite of wind and solar being proven and low cost, the legislature is following Republican politics by saying never to wind and solar. They go by the saying, a bird in your dreams is better than two in your hand. The New York Times reports that the Biden administration will give three native tribes $75 million to move away from coastal areas or rivers, one of the nation's largest efforts to date to relocate communities that are facing an urgent threat from climate change. The three communities, two in Alaska and one in Washington state, will each get $25 million to move their key buildings onto higher ground and away from rising waters, with the expectation that homes will follow. The federal government will give eight more tribes $5 million each to plan for relocation. The project funded by the Interior Department, is an acknowledgement that a growing number of places around the United States can no longer be protected against changes brought by a warming planet. The spending is meant to create a blueprint for the federal government to help other communities, native as well as non-tribal, move away from vulnerable areas, officials said. It will cost a lot more to move Miami Beach, Florida, and Galveston, Texas. There is an update on the polar bear situation. A seminar by Alyssa Carrilla, a college senior from Unionville, brings a new perspective on the future. We are aware that it is a struggle for polar bears to find food because the Arctic ice is reliable as a place to hunt for fewer months of the year. The bears are spending more months on land than ever before, and the bears are relying on scavenging for food and dumps. This brings them into contact with human pathogens. Polar bears are experiencing a wider array of diseases than ever. While the polar bear is spending more time onshore, the grizzly bear is moving north because of global warming. There is much more contact between the two species than ever, and one consequence is that cubs are being born that come from grizzly-polar bear contact. The offsprings are brown and white. A question has been whether this combination would demonstrate greater hunting skills than either parent, but the question is moot because the Grolar cubs are sterile. The polar regions are warming faster than any other locations on Earth. They have warmed by 5 degrees Fahrenheit already and will likely add another 5 degrees by 2100. Eventually, the Arctic will be ice-free year-round. There is no indication yet that the polar bear will be able to adapt to existence entirely on land, and thus it seems destined for extinction. In the November 29th edition of the Herald Times, there's a story indicating that Whole Foods will cease offering lobsters caught in the Gulf of Maine. 
this seemingly out-of-the-blue decision has caused consternation among lobstermen. The reason for this decision is concern for the remaining 340 right whales. Whales can become entangled in lobster gear, and after carrying the gear around for months, they eventually die. If an entangled whale is spotted, often there are efforts to cut the gear off the whale. But this is not an ideal solution because many entangled whales are never spotted. A further reality is that cutting net off a whale is dangerous work. The whales are not aggressive, but they thrash around and can easily hit a rescue boat with flipper or fluke. The decision by Whole Foods is the culmination of a long history. Back in 1880, a fisherman could catch 1,000 pounds of codfish in a single day using only a hand line wrapped around his wrist. If lined up bow to stern, the fishing boats would stretch more than three miles. Lobsters were not commonly eaten, but were thrown onto fields for fertilizer. For more than 100 years, Gloucester, Massachusetts was the fishing capital of the world. Trawlers entered the picture and began to destroy fish stocks. By 1970, the cold water fish in the Gulf of Maine had been greatly reduced, but it took until the 1990s to largely destroy the cold water fishery. Codfish eat lobsters, so once the codfish were largely gone, their population of lobsters exploded. Fishermen became lobstermen. Then came global warming, and the lobsters moved north from waters off Connecticut and Rhode Island. More recently, the waters off Maine have warmed to the point that the lobsters are heading north. Lobstermen see a bleak future, so the action by Whole Foods is seen as yet another blow. The reality is the Gulf of Maine will continue to warm, driving codfish, halibut, and lobsters north into Canadian waters. Originally, it is estimated there were at least 10,000 right whales spending summers in the Gulf of Maine and Canada. They were named because they were the right whale to kill. They are a docile, curious animal. Furthermore, they float when killed so they could be strapped alongside a whaling vessel while the blubber was stripped off the carcass. By 1935, their number had been reduced to under 100. The taking of right whales was banned, though the Soviet Union secretly took hundreds. Their number gradually grew to more than 600 in the late 1990s, but since then have declined. The greatest threat to right whales is not lobster gear, it's collisions with ships. There have been attempts to alter shipping routes and imposing a 10-knot speed limit as ships approached ports. An increasing problem is the lack of food. The right whale feeds mostly on cope pods and krill, both cold water species that are moving north out of traditional feeding grounds. In conclusion, saving the right whale goes way beyond deaths from lobster gear. It's not possible to be very optimistic about the efforts to curb global warming and climate change. The heavy hand of the fossil fuel industry is everywhere, including Indiana. The recent COP27 meeting had thousands of lobbyists from the fossil fuel industry, and the huge oil companies had representatives to prevent any real progress. We present one of the latest efforts to keep temperatures going higher, a story from the New York Times. When a lawsuit was filed to block the nation's first major offshore wind farm off the Massachusetts coast, it appeared to be a straightforward clash between those who earned their living from the sea 
and others who would install turbines and underwater cables that could interfere with the harvesting of squid, fluke, and other fish. Fishing companies challenging federal permits for the Vineyard Wind Project were from the Bay State as well as Rhode Island and New York, and a video made by the opponents featured a bearded fisherman with a distinct New England accent. But the financial muscle behind the fight originated thousands of miles from the Atlantic Ocean and dusty oil country. The group bankrolling the lawsuit filed last year was the Texas Public Policy Foundation, an Austin-based nonprofit organization backed by oil and gas companies and Republican donors. In Indiana, the government is pushing for carbon capture as a way of continuing to burn coal. It doesn't matter that carbon capture is extremely expensive. According to Inside Climate Change, Wisconsin is one of the states included in a recent report by the Northeast Midwest Institute that ranked Midwestern states in terms of their progress on environmental justice issues. Among Midwest states, Michigan ranked first, Minnesota second, and Illinois third, while Iowa, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Indiana ranked lower in that order. Indiana ranks number three over the entire country in terms of the most polluted air and water. The report scored the states based on the existence of 11 factors, like having a state agency that deals with environmental justice, environmental resolutions passed by state legislatures, and providing public online tools to help communities understand environmental justice issues. Based in Washington, D.C., the Northeast Midwest Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization formed in the 1970s to promote economic development, environmental quality, and regional equity across 18 Northeastern and Midwestern states. The report, which also analyzed environmental justice progress in the Northeast, found that coastal states with a high population density and high proportion of Democratic voters tended to score better on environmental justice metrics. Quote, the Republican Party is much more business-focused, and a lot of these environmental justice policies could definitely harm a lot of businesses, end quote, said Nicholas Griffin, the author of the report. Republicans hold a supermajority in the Indiana legislature and decided in advance of the last session they would not allow any legislation that mitigated climate change. Many Midwestern states are confronted by environmental justice issues because of industrial pollution, as the waterways of the Mississippi River and the Great Lakes historically offered prime real estate for steel mills and other manufacturing facilities. Those factories brought industrial pollution that persists in some communities to this day, requiring action from local and state governments. Often, communities near industrial areas are lower income and majority minority, meaning issues of environmental pollution in such neighborhoods are matters of racial and economic justice as well. There are now 8 billion of us, according to the New York Times. How does that affect our ability to live with planetary boundaries and to stave off the worst climate hazards? Actually, what matters most is not how many we are, it's how we live. More people doesn't necessarily mean more emissions. More fossil fuel burning means more emissions. And more affluence has historically meant more fossil fuel burning. 
By 2030, India's population is projected to be more than four times that of the United States. Yet, India's total emissions are still expected to be lower than those of the United States, and its per capita emissions still a small fraction of those of the United States. This reflects a global fact. Countries that represent 12% of the population account for 50% of the emissions that have warmed the planet over the last 170 years. Thus, if all the world lived like India, more people could populate the globe. It is an option. One of the assumptions of this argument is that the globe exists only to serve humans. There is no need for wilderness or forest or wild animals or birds or butterflies. The only species that survive are those that do well in urban areas. Almost everyone would be living at a subsistence level. If life is to be lived at a high level, there must be education and enough wealth to support an artistic class and also provide health care. The experts generally agree that if all people lived at the level of the middle class in America, then the sustainable population is about 2 billion. If we choose the model with 99% living in poverty, then perhaps 6 billion people could live sustainably. That would include not adding further to the carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, FWS, announced that it is proposing to extend protection under the Endangered Species Act to the lesser prairie chicken. The FWS also announced it will split management of the populations between the northern and southern parts of its range, which include portions of five states, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, and New Mexico. The endangered listing will only apply to the population in the bird's southern range, which includes New Mexico and Texas, while the northern population will be listed as threatened. The lesser prairie chicken is smaller than the greater prairie chicken, and we found no records of the lesser in Indiana. The greater was known in Indiana, and these game birds were well studied over the years. A yearly survey of known booming grounds was conducted from 1942 to 1974. The 1951 survey found 17 prairie chicken booming grounds in Newton County, six in Jasper County, and one in White County. Six flocks were found at Fair Oaks Farm in Newton County, where they lived with cattle in over 100 acres of pasture. No graders have been seen in Indiana since 1973. The lesser prairie chicken has lost an estimated 97% of its historical numbers, largely because of the destruction, modification, and overgrazing of its native prairie habitat. Lesser prairie chicken was listed by the federal government as a threatened species in March 2014, making hunting the birds illegal. Limited hunting had previously been allowed in Kansas and Texas. However, during the Trump administration, the hunting bill was annulled in July 2016, and hunting of this extremely scarce species was once again permitted by law. Some attempts to improve grassland habitat have been successful, including efforts to increase native plant cover and to use prescribed burning to create additional display sites or to improve plant cover and insect numbers in nesting habitat. This story of extreme reduction of game birds is likely to be repeated in the coming years as we gradually lose over a million animals and plants. 
And now Enrique Sainz with the Indiana Environmental Reporter will continue his coverage of the possible use of small nuclear reactors by Indiana power companies and the problems surrounding these reactors in part two, small modular nukes. In a case that could cast a cloud on the Hoosier state's nuclear power ambitions, higher steel prices and interest rates could drive up the price of electricity at the nation's first small modular nuclear reactor plant to nearly twice previous estimates. Project developers for the Utah Associated Municipal Power System's Carbon-Free Power Project, a planned 462-megawatt electric plant powered by six small modular reactors, told at least one UAPS member that prices could run up to $100 per megawatt hour, nearly double the projected $58 per megawatt hour. By comparison, the average price for electricity from all sources combined in the grid that serves Indiana and 14 other states, the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, reached $116 per megawatt hour at its peak this year. Renewable energy on its own also experienced large price increases due to supply chain difficulties, pushing utility-scale solar energy and onshore wind energy rates to $45 and $46 per megawatt hour, respectively. The projected costs for the carbon-free power project include a 30% investment tax credit provided by the Inflation Reduction Act. The carbon-free power project has not yet begun construction, but is scheduled for completion by 2029. Without the credit, the project cost could have been up to $120 per megawatt hour, according to a power manager from one of the 27 UAPS members signed on to purchase electricity from the project. Here's what Scott Hughes, power director for UAPS member Hurricane City, Utah, said. To me, it was kind of a punch in the gut when they told us, I was like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? As we talked it out, talked it through, I don't know. There's nothing good about it in any way we look at it, but everything's going up because the next question is, okay, what are we gonna do instead? Or what if the project fails? Hughes said that no UMPS members have backed out of the project yet and that prices may fall before the project's 2029 opening. Higher costs for fossil fuels and inefficient plants have also caused energy rate increases at Indiana utilities, including NIPSCO, AES Indiana, Centerpoint Energy, and Duke Energy Indiana. Indiana legislators passed a law earlier this year that permitted the construction of small modular reactor plants in the state as long as the utility seeking to build the plant also sought federal permits for its construction. The law also added small modular reactors to the list of clean energy projects eligible for financial incentives, including recovery of costs through rate increases for utility customers. The bill's proponents pointed to the carbon-free power project as proof of a growing industry about to take off, but opponents said they were concerned about the potential for cost overruns that would be passed on to ratepayers and about sunken costs from failed projects. The carbon-free power project has experienced several budget setbacks and timeline delays since the project began in August 2020. The project was initially planned to cost $4.2 billion for 720 megawatts of power produced by 12 small modular reactors. The project received a multi-year $1.4 billion award from the U.S. Department of Energy to complete the plant in October 2020, and UAMPS said the funding would ensure the cost of energy would be $55 per megawatt hour. Several months after receiving the award, UAMPS revised the project cost to $6.1 billion, reduced the number of SMRs to be installed to six, and delayed the project by three years. 
Several utilities in Indiana, including AES Indiana and Centerpoint Energy, said they are considering adding small modular reactors to their resource plants. Duke Energy Indiana is in talks with Purdue University to explore the feasibility of using a small modular reactor to power the university's West Lafayette campus. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience in all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Brown County State Park kicks off their winter hike series with a Brown County dog hike on Saturday, December 17th from 11 a.m. to noon. Meet at the Straw Lake parking lot for a hike on Trail 6, which goes around the Straw Lake. Dogs must be on a leash. Take the exploration hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December the 17th from 11 a.m. to noon. Meet Anthony at the Lakeview Activity Center to explore Trails 1 and 2, to learn the history and see all the features of this 1.25-mile area of the park. The trails are considered moderately rugged. Join the Park Naturalist for a guided hike on Trail 7 around Lake Ogle at Brown County State Park on Sunday, December 18th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Hear the history of the lake and learn about the animals that make the lake their home. Join a morning bird walk at the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area for Whooper Wednesday, every Wednesday from the 14th through February the 8th, starting at 8 a.m. You will walk the property to see if you can spot some of the resident winter birds, including the endangered whooping cranes. Dress for the weather. Celebrate the winter solstice on a luminary hike at the Fairfax State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Wednesday, December 21st from 6 to 8 p.m. Enjoy a relaxing luminary lit walk and reflect on the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. Stops along the way will include different activities. Hot tea and cocoa will be available. Dress for the weather. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Our feature was prepared and presented by Enrique Sainz with the Indiana Environmental Reporter. Our script today was assembled by Juliana Daly and edited by Patrick Callanan. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced today's show and edited its audio. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. 
And we would like to wish all of you a very happy holiday. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.